the Buddha said that there were some different functions of a of a Dharma talk, and one kind, maybe the most traditional kind, is something like uh, instructions, meaning that um, there are things we can actually do, energies we can make that uh, lead to less suffering. And some of those strategies are counterintuitive. And so one function of a Dharma talk is actually to talk in very direct, simple ways about um, ways to use the attention, ways to use one's energy, frameworks that are helpful for thinking about things or frameworks that complicate things. But then there was another function of the Dharma talk, which is to just to gladden the mind and we talk a fair amount about uh, about dukkha, about suffering. You've noticed. Um, but this is largely a function of the structure of Buddhist psychology, namely that we are not so much like going out and finding happiness, but uh, dismantling the obstacles in the way. And so um, by necessity, we you know, often wind up talking about suffering a lot. Um, but uh, I was talking to a, a friend, another teacher, and he got on this big, that dukkha is the, uh, is the word suffering or unsatisfactoriness. He got on a big sukha kick, something sukha like pleasure, delight, and and uh, he was telling me how he was just like you know, people need a way to recharge, and we can't just keep asking them to be with suffering, be with suffering. And I was like, you're right. I need to start talking about sukha all the time. Um, Gladdening the mind. This is the second function of a talk. And then uh, a third is uh, to to encourage and uh, support people to keep going. And yeah, sometimes, mostly, I feel like our instructions are keep going. Good, keep going. (laughs) So tonight I wanted to give, uh, I guess this is a little bit of a risk to say out loud, but an encouraging talk. (laughs) Let's see how it goes. (laughs) Um, I was... (laughs) The first plan was to talk about <laughs> was to talk about death and love. 
with with the emphasis on the the first part, death. Scrap that plan. Um, although I'll, maybe I'll say say a little bit about that. So instead, I wanted to uh, to talk about some of the fruits fruits of our practice. What it what it is, um, the outcomes of our practice, and you know, I I don't I don't feel like we actually we as practitioners, we as Buddhist meditators, we you know the research community, the contemplative research community. I don't actually think we really know how these practices work. But I'm, that's a separate question from if they work. Does that make sense? Like understanding the mechanisms through which these practices confer their benefits is different than, than do they work. And the truth is, I'm not, I don't think we really know how they work. But I, I do have a lot of confidence that they do work. And so tonight I wanted to talk about that in a very direct and personal way. Some of the, the effects of practice I've seen uh, in others or in myself. And this hopefully is, is a somewhat of a compliment to I, what I think is a necessary emphasis on the first noble truth and, and, and the discussion of dukkha. So these are the things that that came came to me, um, and it's a, not an exhaustive list by any stretch. But some of the prominent things I see in people as their practice unfolds. Our behavior, and particularly our ethical behavior, starts to harmonize with our deepest intentions. We can think of there's always a certain gap between intention and behavior, right? We know that gap. Yeah, this is the the New Year's resolution gap, right? I I've never remembered a resolution past February. I don't think. Right? There's gaps between intention and behavior, but over the months and years of practice, um, that does. Uh, start to that gap narrows substantially, and we start to feel uh, like we're living in um, deeper alignment. Like our behaviors emerge out of what we care about most, and so we have less of that of that experience of feeling. Um, 
like out of step in a way with our own values. You know that, that sense? The Buddha talked about it as, um, as the bliss of blamelessness. Powerful phrase, the bliss of blamelessness. And for me, in this, in this narrowing of intention and behavior, that gap, one of the effects is that um, we don't feel like we have anything to hide. Like the public-private line starts to really collapse. And I, I think um, sometimes um, I've reflected on secrets, secrets in the Dharma, you know, secrets and Dharma. And our, our practice is, is helping us become, uh, as has been said, more transparent, transparent to ourselves and transparent to others. So the secret, of course, its meaning is, is that we're keeping something hidden from others, but it also has the status of being a little hidden from ourselves, right? The secrets, it's like, uh, it's not just others that we're hiding this from. And over the course of, of practice, um, we become much more transparent to ourselves and much more um, like all of the, the pieces of ourself get gathered up, integrated in a way so that it doesn't feel like, like there's no, no feeling of even having a little bit of a double life. Now our secrets are, are instructive because they often point to who we think we are and what we think makes us of value or what is a cause for shame. So over the course of Dharma practice, we, um, of course, all of this material arises and we are making peace with it, finding our way of integrating secrets, of making secrets um, of clarifying our relationship with that material. Rilke says, I want to unfold. I don't want to be folded anywhere because where I am folded there I am a lie. Now in the same vein, uh, our, our past, and I keep using this word, it, it is um, digested. Our past gets digested. What arises with intensity in our practice, we could say, is that which has not been digested. 
And it's like we've been served a meal that's, that was bigger than we could eat. And there's the effects of that. And so when, when I was saying that uh, what, what arises is not your fault and not an accident, this is some of what I'm pointing to. But over time, um, as we just sit with the simple willingness to experience our life, that the kind of sharp edges of our memories uh, is um, softened by our heartfulness and openness. And so the effect is that we, there are just fewer and fewer things that have any charge in one's past. It's, it, and it's not like this dissociated, numbed out kind of thing. It's no, we like felt it deeply enough that the heart has kind of acclimatized to those truths. And we've, we've, uh, We've really blessed our past with wisdom, with Dharma. Part of what leaves a meal undigested is that we, we actually didn't understand Dharma at the time. And part of what, what helps that digestion process is actually to to see it, to see our past, all the the cast of characters, uh, including ourselves as one of those characters, to see all of those as as both a child of the Buddha and misguided. Or... uh, not able to understand dukkha, really, when it was happening. Now, the, the kind of overall effect of this is to create a, an inner environment that, that feels very uh, safe. And uh, that's, that's a precious feeling, to feel like safe in one's heart, mind. There's no more questioning about the practice. Not in the sense that we become devotees or, or fundamentalist in some way, but the, you know, that, you know, that ambivalence um, about our place in the practice and what it is for us and where we are and uh, 
that ambivalence is, for a lot of people, is the story of their practice. It's like drawn to it, but then some years go by or get caught up in something and we want to do it, but we're not doing it as much as we want. And, um, we wonder about it, our capacity to do do the work. And all, all of that doubt, you know, just collapses. And the questions of where am I? Where am I going with this? How, what, you know, should I be doing this? Should I be exploring other things? Like all of that just, it just gets very simple. Very simple. And when that happens, it's um, our, our life, our life really becomes our, our practice. It's like trite to say now, but it, it's, it's um, our life really, there's a new sense of, of not like the practice here and then my life here and I'm using the practice to get through my life. It's much more like a surrender to life as practice. And when you do that, there's a whole other kind of dimension of, of safety that happens. Because we know it's all going to be Dhamma. Whatever comes of us, it will be Dhamma. And there's actually that, just knowing that is a, a refuge. We know that it's workable in some way and it's part of nature. And so we come to feel like um, we're really, we're walking, walking the path, but more precisely, we're walking our path. We, we don't care anymore if the Buddha existed or that was a myth. We're, we're walking our path. And the guilt about our, how much we're practicing or we practice as much as we think we should. This is Kobanchino. The more you sense the rareness and value of your own life, the more you realize that how you use it, how you manifest it, is all your responsibility. We face such a big task, so naturally such a person sits down for a while. (laughs) There's a whole body of research on affective forecasting, which is um, 
predicting our uh, emotional affective responses to something in advance. And, um, you know, so how, how, how good do you think you're going to feel if, you, if I gave you a million dollars? How bad do you think you're going to feel if I, you had to, whatever, give it back? <laughs> there you go, give it back. Um, we are bad at this. We're bad at this. And one way of characterizing the way we're bad at it is we actually, we kind of underestimate our resilience and we underestimate the momentum that's here now. And so you've likely seen this in your life. You thought something was going to do it for you. You thought that getting this, being that, having this, this, this relationship, this job, this money, this prestige, this you know, on and on, like we, we often overestimate what that buys us. And my feeling is that... Um, We get better. We just get better at predicting what will and what will not bring us well-being. I remember in uh, in graduate school when uh, you know some of my um, colleagues were you know fellow students were. Completed, we were completing a PhD, and uh, and some of them thought it was going to make them happy. <laughs> yeah, I I kind of knew better. <laughs> I I just expected like a little bump in well-being that was short, short-lived. And uh, it was like, it was really nice. It was like, yeah, good job, Matthew. <laughs> and, but did it like alter the texture of my life? I'm like, no. Because we, it's even called the hedonic treadmill, hedonism, you know, pleasure-seeking. It's like we just get used to stuff. We just get used to it. We get something good, and we get used to it, and we then there's upward social comparisons. And so uh, the contention here is that, that, um, that as we pay this kind of attention to our life, we start to get I think we can get a lot better at actually predicting what brings happiness. And it usually simplifies things substantially. 
And when we, when we don't, uh, you could say when we don't want as much, less is lacking. Right? <laughs> Not meant to be like a riddle or something, but <laughs> when we don't want as much, there's less missing. <laughs> And uh, along those lines, just as we start to be more realistic about what can, what things can, what kind of happiness can be bought with this or that, um, and we we find ourselves, our energy is just less fragmented and diffuse, and um, we really are pursuing things that are deeply nourishing that do buy us a lot. And life feels just much simpler, much simpler. We, um, one other. what what we do start to see in terms of our happiness is that um, uh, the the necessity of a kind of path with heart, uh, meaning that uh, there there really there's there is no such thing as a close-hearted happiness. It just it's not um, not satisfying. And so we can organize our efforts in a, they just become more streamlined. Um, there's this, this uh, monk, still a monk, uh, Ajahn Sumedho, who in this Thai forest tradition, and uh, and he said he said something very interesting, kind of funny. Um, and this is somebody who's been talking about, uh, you know, practicing now. I th- it now must be about fifty years, and uh, is really widely respected, and and in a lot of ways seems quite free, and um, and. And he made this comment, even as this this quite happy um, person, uh, he said, every time I think about myself, I get depressed. <laughs> now, <laughs> was he depressed as a person? <laughs> No. So what was he pointing to in that line? Um, Over the years of practice, or maybe weeks or months, or seven days, we come to uh, the stickiness of self starts to resolve. We just... uh, 
the identification with self as something, as something, starts to uh, soften. Now, it, it, it doesn't usually... Um, doesn't usually begin like that. We get into practice and necessarily we go through a self-focused phase usually. We don't come into practice usually to save all beings. (laughs) I got problems. (laughs) I'm trying to live and I need help. And so naturally it's our practice, our problems, our happiness. And that's, um, that's fine and, in fact, appropriate. But we, um, that's a, a phase of practice. And over time, it takes much less energy to sort of keep running the um, yeah, machinations is the word that's coming up. Sort of like to keep keep running the self just takes much less energy. There's so much less energy bound up in this constant manicuring of I amness. And so sometimes I give the example that. Um, if I gave you um, a vase that was priceless, heavy, large, and asked you to safely deliver it to, say, the Golden Gate Bridge, and you had no mode of transport other than to walk, and I just said, please carry that vase to the bridge. What would that walk be like? You can imagine it would be, there would be a lot of uh, anxiety and suspicion, It'd be sort of like looking out. And we would very likely miss the uh, beautiful hills and the sunset. And we would have to walk past the person who needed help. And our whole view would be narrowed and life would be sort of um, ensconced in a little bit of anxiety. The dark twin of the ego, as uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi said. So, uh, in the same way, the self-clinging uh, con- it contracts our life. Uh, 
because we we feel like we're we're sort of um, standing guard at the gates of self, needing to repel some people and invite in others. And it compromises our effectiveness. If I, the moment one thinks one's a Dharma teacher, you're not. Um, it then it just becomes a self playing a role. And this is the ground for so much afflictive emotion of jealousy and anger, anxiety, shame. We, we can really look at those and all see how um, they arise out of a kind of unconscious clinging to self-view. And so over the course of our, of our Dharma practice, we, um, we come to feel like we have so much, um, so much energy is freed up because we're not defending that. We, we, we can't be found out. There's just our habits, our personality that we take care of. But we actually taste the, in more and more varied and deeper, deeper ways what it's like to live without the sense that there is me, like the the way I talk about it is like a smaller it's like a smaller version of Matthew, like somewhere in here, and that's who this is happening to that's who's giving this talk that's who will get to enjoy the praise or blame if this talk goes well or is goes badly. The emptiness of self is not the, not the medicine for every form of suffering, but for some forms of suffering, it, it's the only medicine. Now, as we become more porous, fluent, flexible, um, we are exerting less egoic pressure on others. Meaning that, uh, I, you know, I we don't have to insist on a, you know, that act of manicuring the self is like that, that is done on one's own, but also in the presence of others. And it's a kind of burden we place on others. And so as we start to thin out 
as the sense of I amness starts to thin out and feel more like wind, we're uh, no longer kind of exerting that pressure on others and they feel freer and safer. And I think uh, they treat us better. Maybe because people can sense, in, in somebody who's practiced a lot, they can sense the kind of commitment to nonviolence. And so naturally there's a sense of more safety. And my impression is that, um, that our practice actually changes how others, even strangers, interact with us. We can let go of Buddhism. Something that happens in our spiritual path is that um, we become more and more committed to something, committed to a particular practice or path, and we're letting go, letting go, letting go. But what we don't actually see is that there's an attachment building to the practice itself. And we can see all the sectarian disputes, debates, all of this as a function of, of clinging. And as we come to trust our own practice more and more deeply, it feels safe to let go of Buddhism. Now, that doesn't happen at once. Um, a friend of mine said that, um, he said, we're as fundamentalist as we need to be. So it is, when we, se- when we send you folks home Saturday, we want a bunch of polysuta thumping evangelicals. <laughs> we don't want that. We don't want that. But we do want, we want you to cling to the practice as much as is useful. Does that make sense? (laughs) And then at some point, it's going to be like, there's a love and I love, you know, bowing and, uh, um, yeah, but we don't have to cling to anything. I was walking through uh, market, the Berkeley Bowl, uh, last week, and I was my mind was pretty open, and I had a little bit of like in the vague background was a toothache, and uh, and. 
I had this moment where I, 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 I wondered, like, what, what would life be like if we really were not afraid of death? And when I posed that question to myself, the mind opened. I like, got a real intuitive hit of just how radically open life becomes when we're maybe not just not afraid of death, but less afraid. And sometimes it feels like my, my practice is, is um, devoted to preparation to die and to lose the people I care about most. That was not conscious when I began practice, but more and more I feel like that's, there's that thread that I'm like preparing my heart. Kafka said, um, the meaning of life is that it stops. Was Kafka depressed? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Big time. time. That's a good line, though. The meaning of life is that it stops. Um, The Buddhist approach has a a different view. This is is Ajahn Lee. Uh, Aging, illness, and death are treasures for those who understand them. If they were people... I'd bow down to their feet every day. And so in the Buddhist tradition, we are encouraged to uh, contemplate this, to raise this, um, to see the kind of friction on the heart that's created when we live in denial of our mortality. to clarify priorities. This is uh, Sam Harris. Most of us do our best not to think about death, but there's always a part of our minds that knows this can't go on forever. Part of us always knows that we're just a doctor's visit away or a phone call away from being starkly reminded of the fact of our own mortality or those closest to us. The one thing people tend to realize at moments like this is that we've wasted a lot of time when life was normal. And it's not just what we did with our time, it's that we cared about the wrong things. We regret what we cared about. Our attention was bound up in petty concerns year after year when life was normal. This is a paradox, of course, because we all know this epiphany is coming. Don't you know this is coming? You know this. And yet, if you're like most people, you'll spend most of your time in life tacitly presuming you'll live forever. 
like watching a bad movie for the fourth time or bickering with your spouse. These things only make sense in light of eternity. So we give the heart uh, a chance to adjust and to point us to how we want to invest our energies. And uh, we also can actually take some refuge in this insight of the emptiness of self. When we really get at um, the nature of the fear of death, the fear is, I think, the fear is of the somethingness of self perishing the Matthew with inside Matthew. It feels like that is what dies. But that is a phantom. And as we know, become more familiar with mind states that feel free of self, the prospect of Death changes. It's a kind of sense of the completeness of our life. Rumi says, if you bake bread with the wheat that grows on my grave, you'll become drunk with joy and even the oven will recite ecstatic poems. (laughs) If you come to pay your respects, even my gravestone will invite you to dance, so don't come without your drum. (laughs) I wanted to close with a poem from... um, Nyogen Sensaki was one of, I I don't know the history well at all, but apparently one of the first um, Zen monks in America, Japanese Zen monks in America. And he uh, lived in in an internment camp during World War II, I think in in, uh, California. And... So he was released sometime in 1945. And then he wrote this poem on January 1st, 1946. His first, uh, first New Year free. He uses the word um, Zendo, which, which is in the Zen tradition, means meditation hall. Like a snail, I carry my humble zendo with me. It's not as small as it looks, for the boundless sky joins it 
when I open a window. If one has no idea of limitation, they should enjoy real freedom. A nameless monk may not have the New Year's callers to visit him, but the morning sun hangs above the slums. It will be honorable enough to receive the golden light from the East. Just sit for a moment. May our efforts uh, here, may they be of benefit for each of us and each person we encounter. Thank you.